Good morning, Westside Family Church. It is so great to see you. It is so great to be back. Uh, I wanted you to do something because we have a lot to do today. I would like for you, uh, if you're watching online, you're watching at Speedway here at Lenexa, I'd like for you in preparation, I'd like to put your hands on your head. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask right now and we say to you that we open up our minds to receive your holy word today. I'm going to ask you to put them over your heart. Heavenly Father, we make a commitment even before we hear your word that we're going to receive it into the soil of our heart that has been tilled softly to receive your truth. Now I want you to hold your hands up before the Lord all over the place. And dear God, we promise with the strength that your Holy Spirit provides who resides within us that we will activate your truth in our daily lives uh, to make a difference as we seek to be Jesus to the people around us. And all of God's people said? Okay, so there was this lady and a husband uh, that went to a doctor's appointment for the husband. And uh, after the uh, checkup of the husband, the doctor asked the wife to come into his office alone. He said to her, your husband is suffering from a very serious disease coupled with a lot of stress. If you don't do the following things, he's going to surely die. First of all, you need every morning to wake up and make him a healthy breakfast. Yeah. Uh, Be pleasant to make sure he is in a good mood. And then at lunch, you need to make him an especially healthy lunch. And then for dinner, I mean, lay it all out every evening with a really amazing meal. Don't burden him with the chores because he's likely already had a very stressful day. Don't burden him with your problems. It'll only make his anxiety worse. Basically, what I'm saying to you is meet his every need. And if you can do this over the next 10 to 12 months, I think your husband will make a full recovery. On the way home, uh, the husband asked the wife, so what did the doctor say? And she replied, you're going to die. Today we're beginning a brand new series I'm so excited about called How to Really Love Someone. That illustration is not how to pull it off. What we are going to do instead is that we're going to take five of the nine fruit of the spirits, uh, spirit uh, referred to in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. And these are love, patience, kindness, gentleness, and goodness, which can also be interpreted in the Greek as the word integrity. And we're going to look at how these five characteristics of love played themselves out in an Old Testament character, famous guy by the name of David, in five different relationships he's had. Okay, so today we're going to start uh, with uh, David's relationship with Jonathan and look at the virtue of love. Next week, I hope you're here, we're going to take a look at the subject of patience and how it worked itself out in David's relationship with Saul. In our third week, one of my favorite, we're going to take a look at the virtue of kindness and how it played itself out in David's relationship with a guy named Mephibosheth. And in the fourth week, we're going to take a look at the virtue of gentleness and how it played itself out in a relationship that David had with a couple named Nabal and Abigail. And yes, we're going to finish looking at the subject of goodness, also integrity, with David's relationship with Bathsheba and Uriah. 
Are you ready to dive into week number one? Okay, so I'm going to need you uh, to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, or this would be a good week to download or open up the Westside app. All the scriptures we're going to read are in there, as well as an outline for you to take notes, and as well as just share them with somebody who might be encouraged by what you write down today, okay? Now, as you're going to that place in the scripture or the West Side app, let me give you a little background to the story for those of you who are a little new to the Old Testament. So let's go back to 2000 in BC. God um, chooses a guy named Abraham, and through Abraham, he's going to build from scratch a brand new nation that will one day be called Israel. And through this nation, God is going to bless them. He's going to eventually give them land for them to occupy. And through Israel, all people are going to be blessed. He doesn't say it then, but we know it. It's because Jesus is going to come from this nation. Now, fast forward 600 years. We have a young man named Joshua who is going to lead Israel across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And they are going to occupy the land that God promised Abraham Six. 100 years early, and they divide the land up according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, fast forward another 600 years. We're now at 1000 BC, and Israel chooses a guy named Saul to be their first king. Now, we learn pretty quickly in the unfolding of Saul's story that he repeatedly disobeys God, and the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, God has disqualified you to be the king of Israel. Then prophet Samuel goes at the instruction of God to the house of David in the city of Bethlehem. And he says, I want you to anoint a young man, only 16 years old, named David, to be the next king of Israel. And before David knows it, coming off of the, uh, of the fields of, of shepherding his dad's small flock of smelly sheep, he's got oil pouring down his head, and he's been anointed as the next king of Israel. But he's anointed as the king, but he won't actually be inaugurated as the king for 14 more years. In the meantime, God is going to allow this disqualified candidate, Saul, to remain in office for 14 more years. And next week, we're going to talk about why God did that. Now, a very important part of the story is at David's anointing, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Equally as important, chapter 16, verse 4, it says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And what we see in place is that God placed an evil spirit to torment Saul. And you think, what is that all about? <laughs> You're going to have to come next week to find out. Yeah, we're going to talk about what is going on there. We're not going to shove it under the rugs. We're going to actually talk about what God is doing in the life of Saul. At this point, Saul has no idea who David is. But with this tormented spirit that Saul has, it leads him into a lot of anxiety and a lot of sleepless nights. And so a recommendation is to bring this young guy named David to the palace to play a lyre, which is like a harp, to soothe his soul and it works. Yeah. So I try to apply the scripture to my life. And so whenever Roseanne's having a bad day, I pull out my banjo and I play it to get her into a good mood. And it doesn't work. 
Instead, she throws things at me. Yeah? So it hasn't, so you can't always apply the scripture literally as it is read. Okay? David uh, is brought to the palace uh, to live there, to be a musician uh, for Saul's tormented soul. Now, it becomes very clear early on that God's hand of favor is on this young man. And uh, case in point, early on in the story, uh, young David, 16 years old, comes to the valley of Elah and he uh, takes out a nine-foot giant from the Philistines that was threatening their very livelihood and their very life as the nation of Israel. And um, it is there that we discover that Saul has no idea who this young man is. And it is here that David strikes up a relationship with Saul's son, Prince Jonathan. Okay, now we're ready for the story. I'm going to read a lot of scriptures here, so stay with me. It's a beautiful story. And as I read, uh, starting in chapter 17, verse 55, and I continue to read, I want you to make special note of Jonathan's actions towards David. Here we go. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. I just got to stop there. I have no point to make other than I just want you to imagine this. A 16-year-old boy has just uh, taken the life of a nine-foot giant man with a single stone. He took Goliath's sword, chopped off his head, and he's now in the tent of Saul with his head still in his hand. Okay? No one enjoyed that except the teenage boy sitting in the front here. Okay? (laughs) Saul asked him, David... Uh, Saul asked him, David said, well, he asked him, whose son are you, young man? And Saul asked him, and David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, verse chapter 18. After David finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Got that? All right, let's keep reading. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to greet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul's thinking to himself, that's a really catchy tune. And I really like the lyrics a lot. But then they sang the second verse, and David has slain his ten thousands. David says, Saul says to himself, rut row, I don't like this song anymore. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. 
Yeah, see, David as a young boy did not get the memo, you never beat the boss. You never beat the boss. You always let the boss win, right? You guys know that, right? Oh, see, I'm a golfer. And uh, not a great golfer, but not a bad golfer. But uh, whenever I played with anybody who was my boss, even if I was better than them, I would make sure to sort of lay down and let them win, at least by a stroke, right? That's the right thing to do. And that's pretty much what happens here now that I'm kind of the boss, uh, except with one guy. It's Pastor Brad Norman. Yeah. Yeah, the dude uh, played golf, D1 golf in high school. We talked about it before. He's a great golfer. Uh, And he knows, though, the rules. Uh, Even though he's a great golfer, way better golfer than me, he's supposed to lay it down and make sure I win uh, at every time. But he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't do that. He has failed. So what do I have to say about that? Brad Norman, pastor, rest in peace. Yeah. Broke the rules, man. Okay. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Let's keep reading. Saul's jealousy grows and he begins to act out on it toward David. And again, as I read, I want you to note, call to attention, Jonathan's actions towards David. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan had uh, taken a great liking to David, and he warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there, and I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan, and he took this oath. Oath. As surely as the Lord lives... David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Wouldn't that be great if that was the end of the story? But it's not. It worked for a while. There was peace in the relationship. But in 1 Samuel 19 and verse 9, it tells us that God hardened Saul's heart. What? What is God doing that for? Well, you're going to have to come next week to find out what God's doing. Uh, It is through God's intervention that Saul breaks his oath and stirs up his jealousy towards David once again. It says in verse 9, But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin Uh, him to the wall with his spear but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall that night David made good his escape as we move into chapter 20 of the story we see Saul's uh, jealousy only intensifies he begins to track and pursue David like a fugitive in verse 1 of chapter 20 uh, David thinks that he's going to die at the hand of Saul he believes it But in verse 2, Jonathan says, you are not going to die. This is very much a different outcome from the story I told you at the beginning when she told her husband, you are surely going to die. Here, Jonathan is saying back, you are not going to die. In verse 4, Jonathan says to David, whatever you want me to do, I will do for you. So they make up this plan. David was to have a meeting, uh, a couple days of meeting with 
Jonathan and David and several in the king's court. Uh, but David made up a story that he had family business in Bethlehem and wasn't going to be able to make it. Jonathan would be there to see what Saul's reaction was to this. If uh, Saul was kind toward David and understanding, uh, then it, uh, David would come back. If the relationship was still hostile, David would know he would have to flee once and for all. So David hung out in a field by a rock. And uh, when Jonathan was done, if the uh, archery uh, person that was with uh, Jonathan shot three arrows short of the rock, then David would know it was safe to come back to the palace. If one of the arrows went beyond the rock, David would know Saul is still out to get me and it's time for us to depart. And so uh, here's what happens. Uh, uh, Jonathan confronts Saul. It says in verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. <laughs> Why is it mom's fault? <laughs> right? Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother that bore you? I love that. And this is what he says. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, and this is true, by the way, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. It's true. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. But we find here in verse 32 that Jonathan is defending David. Saul tries to kill his son. I mean, Saul needs some anger management classes, man. He tries to kill his son. Now in verse 34, listen very carefully. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. And on that second day of the month, he did not eat. Because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. So here's Jonathan, and Jonathan is sick to his stomach and doesn't eat the entire day. Why? Because of his father's shameful treatment of David. Not because his father just tried to kill him. Are you catching the relationship that David and, Solomon and, so and Jonathan have together? So Jonathan takes the archer, and the third arrow goes long, and David knows that it's time to leave. In verse 41, here we go. It says, after the boy had gone, who shot the arrow, David got up from the south side of the stone and he bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Why, of course he did. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. And this would be the last time that David and Jonathan would ever see each other. Now, I want to fast forward 10 years. They still have not seen each other. At the end of the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, we see that Saul and Jonathan, together with their army, lose a battle and, uh, and, uh, and they die. Jonathan dies on the battle uh, field with his father, Saul. And uh, last, about a uh, couple people, I see the kitchens out here, went to Israel with us. You remember uh, that we were, uh, just not but 10 days ago or something like that, we were at a place called Bet Shane, uh, which is a city that they have unearthed. And it was there that the headless body of Saul and the three sons of Saul, including Jonathan, were hung for three days. Yeah, we were actually there. The book of 2 Samuel opens up in chapter 1. In verse 17, and David becomes the king 
just like Samuel and God had promised 14 years total later. And David writes a lament. He writes down his thoughts and positive words about Saul. Okay, how would he be able to do that? Well, you're going to have to come back next week to find out how in the world somebody who tracked him down for 14 years, David could write a heartfelt lament for. And then he finishes with a lament for Jonathan. David expresses his deep love for Jonathan because he knew that Jonathan saw God's plan for David even when David couldn't. And David knew what Jonathan gave up to support him. Okay, tell me that's not a great story. Yeah. But the question is, how does it help us learn how to really love someone else in our life? And I want to point out four things and invite you to take some notes. Ready? Principle number one, I make a no-strings-attached covenant with them. I make a no-strings-attached covenant with them, a promise toward a long-term relationship. We see at the very beginning of the story that Jonathan made a covenant with David, which says, I'm going to be there for you no matter what. Now, I bring this out, and particularly for our young people today, because somehow or another, we haven't been able to transfer to you the concept of covenant over contract. Covenant over contract. So Roseanne and I made a covenant with one another 40 years ago. And what that means is that I'm going to be there for you no matter what, in sickness and in health. Remember that line? You know, uh, you know, uh, you know riches poverty, boom. It's not based on circumstances. I'm going to be there for you. She made a promise to be there for me, okay? I can, I can tell you this. There is no way I would still be married to Roseanne 40 years later if she had not made an unconditional, no-strings-attached covenant with me. She would have thrown me out on my behind a million times over. But she didn't because she made a covenant with me, and I made one with her. So what young people are doing today is they're making contracts. They're making contracts, and it's very different. The contract is, hey, let's move in together, and we'll make a contract. And the contract is, as long as you make me happy and I make you happy, we'll keep this gig going. But as soon as one of us breaks the contract, I'm out, baby. And anybody who's been married for a long time knows that that, wa- that dog will not hunt. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah, and the same thing is true beyond our marriages to our children and to our relationship. The nice thing about a covenant is in the days when you don't feel like it, you go back to the promise you made and you keep it. Boy, covenant, we got to get that through to people. Um, We try to do this for everybody in our life, but I think God wants us to really do it only for a handful of people. That is our capacity. It could be your mate. It could be an aging parent. It could be a child the child of a single parent that you feel like needs extra help. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. Uh, we have a, a good a mentor in my life. He's been a mentor of mine uh, for a long, long time, 30 years. He's on my personal board of directors. Uh, any move that I make, uh, they hold, he holds me along with two other men accountable. Uh, just an uh, honest thing, I'll just tell you. You may not like me for it, but uh, when the opportunity came to come here, Uh, I made a decision, no. And the three men got together and said, we say yes. And uh, that's one of the reasons we're here today is because I listened to this personal board of directors. Well, um, uh, years ago, uh, he had gotten word that there was a lady uh, living uh, out of her car with her two small children. 
and God did something in his heart, and he knocked on the window. She rolled the window down, and he entered into a Jonathan-David relationship with her and her two kids, and he brought her in. Okay, I'll finish the story in just a little bit. So I ask you this question right here. Who has God put before you to make a covenant with? It would be very tangible and helpful to actually write the names down. Can't be 100 people. Might be just one. It could be upwards to 10. Who are those people? Principle number two, how do I really love somebody? I am their advocate. I am their advocate. An advocate is someone who's going to stick up for you and speak up for you no matter what, even when you're not present, okay? I don't want this to be a newsflash, but let's speak truth here. The reality is most of the family members of your life and most of the friends of your life have already talked badly behind your back. Yep. And you know how you know that? It's because you've done the same thing to them. It is very rare to have an advocate that will stick up for you when you're not around. When someone begins to talk badly about you or undermine you, they say, wait, 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 whoa, 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 I object. They know you have flaws. They know you have weaknesses, and yet they stick up for you anyhow. Do you know in the scriptures it says that right now Satan is standing before the Father and he's accusing you? They're fake. They're not going to keep their commitment. They don't really love you. But the scripture also says that Jesus is right there with us, with them, and he is our advocate. What does it mean? He says, I object to what Satan is saying about, and he puts your name in. They've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. Isn't it great that we have an advocate in heaven? So the question becomes, do you have such an advocate on earth? And more importantly, are you that kind of advocate for someone else? Principle number three, how do I really love somebody? I help them see God's good vision for them. I help them see God's good vision for them. David had been anointed by the bona fide Samuel. I mean, the legit prophet that he was going to be the next king. But through all of the turmoil, he lost the vision and stopped believing it. But Jonathan is in his life to remind them that you're going to be the next king. Jonathan kept reminding him of that. Uh, we need, for the people that we have covenanted with, we need to speak God's good vision in them, particularly when they cannot see it. We need to grab them by the cheek and make them look us in the eye and saying, this is God's good vision for you. My friend who took in, uh, oh, by the way, they're members of Westside Family Church. They don't live here, but they watch every single Sunday, 8015. Uh, took in the mother and the two kids, employed her, uh, provided a place for them, and he noticed this unique talent within the two girls. And so uh, they paid for them to go to a special school to get the best education that they could possibly get. They graduated with honors, and I know the story of the oldest daughter. She graduated with a PhD from MIT. True story, yeah? A true story. When is the last time that someone has grabbed you by the cheeks and has spoke God's good vision for you? When I was 15 years old, I had just been a Christian for about six months. 
My parents weren't coming to church. I felt like an orphan in church. Maybe some of you feel that way or felt that way, and I just felt really out of place, but I was leaning into my faith and my relationship with the body of Christ, and in the lobby of this a smaller church that we went to, an older man by the name of Ray Teeter, he didn't grab me by the cheeks, but he grabbed me by the shoulders. I was 15 years old, and he said, Randy, you would make a good pastor. I would, me? I mean, my parents don't come. You see something like that in me? It was the first time that anybody saw any vision in me. And I held on to that. And today, I'm your pastor. Because Ray Teeter, as a Jonathan to me, spoke that vision into my life. Okay, the final one is the most important of all. I sacrifice my rights to see them succeed. I lay down what I what is rightfully mine to see them succeed. Jonathan, Prince Jonathan was next in line to be the king of the mighty nation of Israel. In the early part of their relationship when Jonathan gave him his robe, his tunic, his bow, his sword and his belt, those were royal um, articles of clothing. And when he's giving him his royal robe, he's signaling, I see God's plan. It is not for me to be the next king. It is for you to be the next king. And I lay down my right to be the next king in order to see God's good vision for you. We all need someone who believes in us that much. We need to love others that much that we would sacrifice our plans and our rights, lay them down to see them succeed. Wow, it's good stuff. Now the question is, is there any modern day examples of any Jonathans running around? And the answer is right here at Westside, there are plenty of examples of that, but I just want to highlight one, if it's okay with you. So we have a Westsider, uh, a mom, who has a grown son, who is incarcerated, and he's actually awaiting trial and his final sentencing. It's a pretty serious deal. And as a Jonathan to her son, even in the midst of his situation, she's gone to visit him every week in prison. Uh, but there was one particular week where he was, she was not able to go, so she called the church to see if a pastor would be available to drive to the prison and meet with her son. It turned out that particular week there were no pastors available. Rot row. What are we going to do? Well, I want you to take a look at this wonderful Jonathan story. My name is Bill Smith. I was in the military for 22 years and uh, throughout uh, several combat tours. Uh, coming back home, I had an awful lot of nightmares. So what I would do is medicate myself with alcohol in order to get to sleep a little bit quicker and sleep through the night. In 2019, I had a feeling in my heart that I, I wanted to do something with the folks in, in our local prison. So. Uh, I sat down with, with some leadership at the Brothers in Blue Ministry 
They made me aware of some of the classes that uh, they thought that I would be a good fit coming from a background of addiction, faith background, and also the military background. But then COVID hit and that put a pause on everything. My name is Dion and I am Bill's wife. Last December, I received an email from Amy from one of our church members um, who was looking for a pastor uh, to visit their son um, who is in jail. So I passed that email on to Bill and um, went upstairs and said, hey, did you see the email from Amy? I text back and forth with Amy to try to get the details. I asked the parent, did Amy make you aware of the fact that I am not a pastor? I have zero qualifications for any pastoral duties. I am just strictly a church member at Westside. And the parent mentioned, well, Amy recommended you, so she has confidence in you, so I have confidence. Mind you, this is two days before uh, Christmas Eve, and it was also Bill's birthday. Um, but that wasn't even a part of the, of the conversation. Um, he felt like this was something that he was called to do, and so he agreed to do it. On the drive to meet David for the first time, I was pretty much in constant prayer because I didn't want to screw up. And I didn't want him to look at me like, who is this guy? Why, why is he here? He must have recognized that I was uh, this new random person. So he pointed to the phone for me to pick up. And the, the, the first thing that I noticed is that David had a, a, a big Black King James Bible sitting in front of him and it was, it, it was between us and the glass. <clears throat> and we, I just introduced myself. So we just continued to talk just about random stuff. But then he started opening up the Bible and talking about scripture and reading scripture. And I, I, I was just, I was blown away by the, the, the great relationship that he maintained with, with Christ in such a hostile environment. And then as I was walking out of the facility, I just broke out in tears because it was just truly amazing that David held such a great relationship with the Lord. Most folks will give up, but he didn't. Very encouraging. So I am so proud of Bill. Um, sometimes he um, doubts himself. I just love that he has such a servant heart. So when he started visiting David, um, he visited him on Christmas Eve and on New Year's Eve. Um, and then for the beginning of the year, um, there wasn't really a schedule or anything uh, for him to visit David. Um, and he said, you know what? I need to put this on the calendar. I need to set up a recurring time to go. So now um, every third, third Friday, um, he's in the car heading out uh, to see David. Throughout the time that uh, David has been incarcerated, he, he's still awaiting trial. And it's undetermined what's gonna happen, regardless of what happens. I'm not gonna look at him any differently. I'm still gonna love him as a, as a child of God and also as a friend. 
regardless of where the location is, I would still like to maintain a relationship with David and hopefully if God gives me the opportunity to still physically visit him on a predictable schedule, regardless of where he's at. I just want to say to Bill that I'm so proud of you and I love you so much. And I know that, you know, sometimes it's hard for you to toot your own horn, which is not, that's not what this is about. This is about being a humble servant and, and helping someone with their walk towards the Lord. So I just love you for what you're doing and I'm so, so proud of you. Isn't that a beautiful story? Yeah. So um, we roped Bill uh, into telling the story under false pretense. Uh, he uh, didn't know I'd any idea that we were going to uh, pose him as a modern-day Jonathan to a young man in prison. Otherwise, he wouldn't have let us tell the story. He had no idea his wife was speaking uh, on his behalf. And so uh, as of this morning, he didn't know, have any idea what we were doing. And uh, so he's a pretty humble guy, you can see. Uh, but I'd like you to meet a modern-day Jonathan. Let's have Bill and his wife, Dion come out. <laughs> So, uh, Bill, uh, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, he said uh, uh, he thanked his disciples and people for visiting him in prison. And he said, I don't remember ever visiting you in prison. And he said, no, when you went and visited one of these least brothers of mine, you did it for me. And uh, so you're fulfilling that commitment. And uh, can I call you Pastor Bill? <laughs> I know you feel very uncomfortable with that, but I'm just telling you, dude, uh, you did it. And uh, you entered into uh, a relationship uh, with him. And um, so one of the things that David did uh, after the news of Jonathan's passing is that he wrote a letter that's forever in the scriptures. And so your David has written a letter for you as well. He said, I am so grateful that you have come into my life. You've asked me something along the lines while waiting to go on trial, are, are you always this happy and upbeat? This is a multifaceted question. First of all, I'm human, so I have ebbs and flows like other inmates. I also want to give praise to God and explain that this is what can come out of a man who fasts and prays. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That means that even though my crisis is about to break me, I know that God has got me. The plan was already there at the beginning to fix our mess back into his purpose. Then he writes, I am so thankful for the fact that the Holy Spirit brought us together because you have become like a Jonathan to me. Yeah. Sure, I have family and friends that have comforted me, but to have an outsider come into my life and make a brotherly promise to stay close enough to give me a spiritual reason for what is going on I will always be indebted of your Philadelphian love. I look forward to seeing you again. And dear brother, don't be drinking too much soda pop on me. 
and turn into a chunky monkey. Must, joke, yeah. <laughs> some sort of inside joke, maybe you can inform us. It says, I'll see you next visit. I leave you with this Hebrew exit to this letter. Shalom, shalom. Right, yeah, right. So um, I had to keep this as a surprise for him because um, he agreed to do this video only if he didn't have to come up on stage. <laughs> so surprise. <laughs> Um, but again, I just want to say that I am really proud of you and what you're doing, and um, you're making a big difference in David's life, and I'm glad that you are, are serving the Lord and serving him and um, representing this church as Pastor Bill, maybe. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but I love you, so thank you for what you're doing. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Um, at Speedway here in the room, even if you're at home. We're going to enter into a time of worship. It's just a simple story, isn't it, of what it means to be a Jonathan. And as we respond in worship today, I want you to think of three things, particularly the one that will apply to you. Number one, it may be, God, Lord, I need a Jonathan in my life. And for some of you, you don't have that person. You don't have someone who will grab you by the cheeks and remind you of God's good vision for you. And you desperately are crying out for a Jonathan in your life. Ask the Lord for it. Number two, you may say, Lord, I need to thank you during this time of worship for the Jonathan that is in my life. And it may be, uh, that person may be sitting to you for next hour. Thank God for them first. And then right here in the worship service, right at home, uh, at Speedway, just reach over and give them a big bear hug and thank them for being a Jonathan for you. Yeah. Or if they're not here, writing them a letter or picking up the phone and giving them a call and saying, thank you for being my advocate. And laying down your rights for me. I don't deserve it, but I thank you for it. And the thing I want everybody to focus on is that I can't, I can't make it so that you have a Jonathan. But I can suggest that with God's strength in you, you can be a Jonathan to somebody else. And so I'd invite you to say, Lord, help me to be a Jonathan. And then write in the name of that person as we worship. Heavenly Father, we now thank you for Pastor Bill and his wife, Dion, And the way in which... The, that he is in the most simplest of ways being a friend, an advocate for this young man whose destiny is so up in the air. But with a Jonathan, your good vision for him will come to fruition. And I pray now as we bring these requests before you that your spirit would be free to roam and speak to us in the deepest part of our soul. We pray this in the name of Jesus. All of God's people said, amen.